founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have Matt Lowe, co-founder and CEO of Swift Straw. In an industry in need of better customer service and sophistication, Matt changed Pine Straw distribution by working with clients to lower costs and decrease the management burden of their landscapes. By using effective communication and problem solving, Swift Straw has become the single largest Pine Straw installer and distributor in the United States and has made the Inc. 5000 six years in a row. Matt Lowe, we are so excited to have you on the podcast today, buddy. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, I'd love just to, to, to know a little bit of the backstory. It's where we always start on the podcast. But what were the series of events that led you to start uh, this company? Yeah, uh, you know, m- most of my career has, has been you know, one opportunity sort of opening a door to another. And I, I, I started with a, uh, an investment group here in Atlanta that had a, um, a timberland focus. And so um, we, we've always had lots of experience um, with recreational land, with timber. And um, when our original co-founder reached out to me uh, with those connections and asked if I could procure some pine straw for him, he, he was growing a, uh, a small business in the Auburn, Alabama area. And with my connections in the space, it was really easy to, to sort of put those puzzle pieces together. And that was sort of the first uh, introduction to the concept that traditional timber uh, the returns are all based on your fiber growth. Each tree, each year, the tree gets gets a little bit larger. Mm, yeah. And um, but never before uh, did I know that the needles that fall from the tree can be monetized. Mm. And once you start to put those uh, puzzle pieces together and realize that, in addition to the tree growth, you can monetize a natural resource that falls every single year. Wow. And really increase the returns. Uh, in our case, you know, three, four, five times what is traditional. I, I was hooked. And, and so um, that was sort of the introduction to the concept. And then after doing more diligence on the space itself, um, it was a very large niche within the greater green, green industry. And it had not innovated since the 50s. Hmm. So you still had guys out in the woods with hand rakes, raking straw on the ground, off the ground into piles, putting it into a wooden box and tying it with string. Whoa. And that was the product that was distributed four, five, $600 million worth of this product was shipped all over the country. And so that's when all the different innovative ideas started, uh, started to surface. And from that point I was, I was hooked. And so, um, in, in 2011, um, I exited the, the, the business that, um, that I was, that I was a part of and, um, and moved on to, to build Swift straw full time. So how long was that period of time from when you started to, to see the opportunity, brain starts maybe churning to the actual, I'm doing this, this is the company I'm, I'm launching. What was that time period? Yeah, it was about 18 months. And, and I was still, um, the, my previous um, company, I was very fortunate to, to align with a, with a guy named Lee Woodall. He's one of the most successful real estate entrepreneurs, uh, I mean, in Atlanta and, and probably in the Southeast as well. But um, he was one of the very few that predicted the 2007 downturn. Mm-hmm. And so very fortunate to be associated with him. And, uh, I, and I was able to co-found a business with, with them, yeah. uh, where, where we were in a position to buy a lot of the distressed debt. Yeah. Um, and so when, when banks started to fall, they were unloading their non-performing loans mm. and we were in a great position to capitalize on that from really 2007 to 2011 and, uh, about 18 months before I made the switch full time, my friend uh, and co-founder Robert Swift had reached out. And, and so um, I was able to, to, or we were able to start uh, a small business on the side, just a small pine straw company, just to test the waters, learn more about the space. Um, and then after about 18 months, uh, we had built the business up to about 3 million in revenue. Wow. And, uh, and so, I, you know, we were able to get a nice, uh, a nice test drive and really, you know, get a feel for the space before making the full move. And at that point, um, after about 18 months, I went to Lee, my partner at the time, and said, um, I've got an idea. I think we can build a $100 million company. Why don't I make the move? And, um, and, and he's, he's uh, one of the largest shareholders in Swift Straw as well. So he was fully supportive. Uh, I made the move full time. We hired a few guys on the real estate side to manage what we had, what we had bought. 
and um, and that that business is still doing well, thriving today. And but I've been uh, full time Swift Straw ever since. Wow, that's amazing. So when you first started that that small kind of test company, did you start off with some key innovations early? Or did you kind of just do it the way the other guys were doing it as you got uh, accustomed to the market and how everything worked and then innovated later? What did that look like for you? Uh, that's exactly it. The first 18 months was just learning, um, was learning the landscape, understanding how everyone did it. And it was a, a lot of conversations uh, that I had with people. And, you know, it seems like with everything we do, the common theme is, well, that can't be done or that's impossible. Um, the, the reason that Pine Straw's never been innovated is um, most field equipment is made for open fields for agriculture. Mm. So the bigger, the, the broader, the wider, that, that creates more efficiency in an open field. Well, when you're in pine trees, you've only got about 10 feet of space. Sure. And so it, it's totally counter to all the innovations in the ag industry. And so a, a, lot of the, a lot of the people saying that it can't be done or it's not possible, it's just that, that no one had ever looked at, at, at innovating in a space that required very compact equipment. Yep. And so, um, so we really started the innovation process after that, that 18 month learning period. Is that where you started in the, in the collection of the pine straw? Is that where you guys started to innovate was starting there in the process? That's correct. So the, so just kind of backing up, um, you know, our, our mission from the very beginning, you know, it, it actually started on a, on a yellow pad where yeah. I, you know, mapped out the, the original plan to get to hundred million. And that, that plan has changed a good bit, obviously, uh, you know, since that initial pad, but, um, but, but the guiding North star has always been to change the industry forever through innovation. And kind of focusing on, you know, what are the primary customer frustrations and not just customer frustrations, but all the way down the line, you know, what are the frustrating things about the process of harvesting the distribution and, and just kind of a, a quick overview from a customer standpoint, those string tied bales were a problem because they hadn't been clean. They're very dirty, lots of debris. But if you can imagine tying it by string, they fall apart all the time. And so if you're loading, loading straw in the back of your truck or worse, if you're trying to put it in your car, you get home and it's a complete and utter mess. Mm -hmm. And so from a customer standpoint, the product itself was very frustrating. Um, as you move down the line, the logistics was very frustrating because you can't palletize square bales. So the mm -hmm. whole freight industry is set up uh, with, with palletized distribution. Yet pine mm -hmm. straw had to be floor loaded, stacked by hand. You have to walk seven miles to load a trailer or unload a trailer of square bales. So <laughs> extremely laborious. And, and you've got to have a lot of equipment. I mean, literally at this point, I think we own about 16, 1700 semi-trailers. Wow. And it's, wow. it's just amazing how much equipment's required to, uh, you know, to distribute the amount of straw that's needed out in the market. And then get down into the fields unbelievably laborious. You're literally raking by hand in the heat, obviously in some cases, uh, depending on the season, um, yeah. but you're totally dependent on the availability of labor, lots of labor and weather. If it rains, you're out of business for, for two or three days. And so we sort of looked at all the different frustrations from the, from the field all the way up to the customer, and then just started to apply innovation and kind of prioritize, you know, which projects we were going to tackle first. And the, yeah. uh, the first innovation was on the customer, well, it was actually on the field side and the customer side. We found a, um, a small compact baler that was made in, in Japan for baling rice hay. Huh. And it makes about a 28 pound net wrapped roll. And so the, the benefit on the field side is um, it's, it's approximately twice as efficient. So five yeah. guys in the woods can make twice the amount of product with the, uh, with the, with the rice baler that they can yeah. make with, with square bales. So huge innovation on that side, picked up a lot of efficiency. And wow. on the customer side, we, we eliminated the waste. So no more strings falling apart. You know, if you're a retailer and uh, you've got 1500 bales on a trailer, you're just used to 50 of them falling apart, never going through the cash register. Wow. Yeah. And so having the net wrap, it eliminated the, the waste issue so immediately created a better customer experience, uh, both for the end consumer and for the retailer. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I'm curious as an innovative mind and as innovation being one of the core missions, principles, you know, values of your company, how do you think about innovation? What have you learned about the process of innovation and how to do it well? You know, we've seen as, as, as business coaches, so many people 
use innovation as a, as a value, right? They, they say they're innovative and you look around, they really haven't innovated anything, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's an aspiration, but it's not a reality. Uh, but you guys, it sounds like I've done that from the very beginning. So I'd just yeah. love to hear kind of how you think about it, how you approach innovation. Yeah. Well, so to me, you know, innovation, disruption, and, you know, all of it sort of creates a competitive moat around the business. I mean, everything about innovation is positive. It's better for the customer. It's, it's better for your business. You know, once you, once you get through kind of the startup and the R and D phase, sure. Uh, But to me, innovation is what fuels everything. It's, it's what creates value. It's what drives profitability. It creates a better customer experience. It's what's exciting. I mean, that's, you know, I was reading through some of y'all's some of the questions on your list, you know, what, how do you inspire people and what, what, what gets you out of bed? I mean, innovation to me is the fuel that, that, that drives all of that. That's what, that's, that's why people are excited to work at Swift Straw. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the biggest thing is there's a tremendous amount of, of just natural required research and development tons. I mean, re- literally the only guarantee is that the first idea is not going to work. Yeah. And so <laughs> really creating a process of how quickly can we figure out every single thing that's not going to work and ultimately lead to something that will. And, and, and the more quickly that, that, and seamlessly, you know, we can work through that process, the better. Um, and so I mentioned to you, the first innovation was a net wrapped roll, but that still, that, that was a partial solution, but that, that was not, that still isn't today the, the, the final innovation. Um, a, a, a couple of years ago, because it's it's still it it works well for the contractor. You've still got the palletization issue, and it's still not great for the consumer because not everybody has a pickup truck or a car or um or a truck. And so, for every consumer out there that that needs and wants to buy pine straw, they still can't put a roll in the back of their truck. So that's what led to we wanted to put it in a bag so that it was clean um, and it was easy for uh, for anybody, no matter what type of truck or trailer you have. Yep. Um, and then we needed to find ways to compress it so we can fit more straw into one unit. And, yeah. and, and so it's just, it's just been this constant evolution of testing, trying new things. Um, you know, I've, mm. we've got booklets and booklets of research and development from the thousands of conversations we've had with manufacturers all over the world, looking at different industries, seeing what yeah. they do. Um, and in uh, a few years ago, we released that compression bag product and um, and it's, you know, of course, it, it took a minute for everybody to, um, you know, adopt the change. You know, thankfully, we have, we have incredible customers. I mean, they've, they've been with us through, you know, all the growing pains of, you know, being on Inc. 5,000 six years in a row. As you can imagine, we've, you know, we've had some issues along the way. They've hung in there with us. They've, they've trusted us. When we come to them and say, hey, look, I know this is crazy, but we've, we've got a new product that we think is going to be really, it's going to be, it's going to be the next big thing in Pine Straw. And they trusted us. Um, yeah. And, and you know, we got it out there a few years ago, brand new product. Of course, everyone said no one will buy it. It's too expensive or, or you know, a myriad of reasons. But they hung in there with us. And now we're sort of, um, you know, we've kind of crossed the chasm of that, you know, scary, innovative new product to now it's it's going mainstream. And, um, and you know, now we're in a situation where we're, uh, we're having production constraints to keep up. And so wow. that sort of leads to, uh, you know, it, it, again, it's just this constant evolution of innovation. Um, from, from when we started the, um, the processing line where we, we bring in straw to a facility and, mm. and, and it, we've got a, a processing line that goes into a bagger. And of course, the first version was not, uh, was not the final version. So yeah. we've since, we invented a cleaning system that takes out 99% of all the debris, sticks, rocks, wow. um, which, which was a huge innovation. That's awesome. Yeah. The product that much better, um, but you know, since then, right now we're implementing an ERP system that literally will track the dust extraction. It'll track the dry matter waste. It'll track every rock that comes out of it. And so we're really just honing in and, and bettering the system. We just yeah. installed a robot to to stack stack the bags and make pallets, which that's yeah. the big. Um, so we're solving that logistical problem where now we're shipping product on pallets. Which, yep. you know, which opens up the entire freight market. Um, we've got a new line coming in a few months um, that's going to be you know, that much better, that much more iterative um, yeah. than, than our original line. And so it's just kind of, I know that was a long answer, but it's-, no, it's that's really, cool. When I think about innovation, it is every day, all day, how do we improve it? 
and it, it never stops. Yeah, I love that. I, I mean, I'm trying to remember who who I heard tell tell this story, but she was talking about how she grew up and how she was raised, and that her her father at the dinner table would ask, uh, "What'd you fail at today?" And that that was their question, "What'd you fail at today?" Because just trying to get them into that comfort, uh, that place of comfort with trying something, testing it, and and kind of, hey, we didn't win, we failed at, at this thing, we didn't actually succeed. I love that thought for for you, and it's something that Drew and I have applied to. To different things that we've been working on because we might uh, we might have some natural and maybe it's just even an American thing potentially, but just that desire for perfection, that desire for like I do the job and I get an A plus, right? Instead of you know being satisfied with with the process, but when you're when you're saying, hey, look, we actually the, the first time that we go at something, we're probably going to go ahead and assume that this isn't right. You know, whatever our first assumption is is probably wrong, but we got to go test that thing to go start making the other innovations. I love that as a just as a mindset of um, you, you continually see it with the most innovative people that I know um, in, in kind of close relationship. That's the, the way that they go about life is, mm-hmm. you know, what, what you find is, is, man, you, you kind of get frustrated in that three months. But two years later, they're the most innovative people because they've been testing every three months these different ideas. And then you're going, well, somebody else was continuing to hold or trying to make this one idea work or trying to, you know, hold on to it in a precious manner. And they just started testing early, uh, which I think is is powerful. Um, and then something that you mentioned even at the very, very beginning, which I think is is kind of that, uh, an initial key is your curiosity and your desire to figure out what are the what are the problems? You know, what are all the the pain points along the supply chain from you know that end user customer all the way through a retailer through, hey, my guy loading up the the stuff themselves. Um, that to me is is really fantastic. I was just talking with with our team today. We were we were laughing about it was just a just a morning conversation. It was fun. It wasn't even necessarily serious, but we were just talking about coffee and and getting getting Starbucks coffee. And then we just talked about the innovations that the coffee industry has had. Like you used to buy a bag full of beans that you had to grind yourself, and then they just continue to make these things that there's these little K cups that you pop in, um, or you just drive through a drive through. And I kind of imagine that for you guys is like you're just taking that next step and that next step in, Hey, pine straw. Yeah, that's a thing. How can we continue to make this something that's more and more user-friendly that removes the friction? Uh, that is a, a really cool thing. Very inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I think that was Sarah Blakely. Uh, the, yes. the example you were given. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She's awesome. Well, that's what, that's what makes me curious is I was trying to think about what are the antagonists to a innovative culture, right? And the thing that would naturally come to mind to me, which I would love to hear from you, is combating the fear of failure, right? Mm-hmm. That this could cost us precious time, precious money, you know, uh, might this ego or could piss off our customers while we're figuring it out instead of just doing it the old tried and true way. How have you guys approached uh, that or overcome just that kind of general fear of failure and preferring to go the path of least resistance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, and it, it really is something that at this point, it's, it's just ingrained in our culture. And I think having kind of a guiding mission of changing the, the industry forever through innovation, mm. there's never been a question of what we're going to do. And so if, if you remove, if you remove, um, if you remove the question of what what we're going to do and replace it with how we're going to do it. Mm. And because that, because basically no one in our organization is ever going to say that, that we're not going to continue to improve the product or we're not going to find better ways to do it. Then it becomes, well, if we can all agree to that, then the question becomes, how are we going to do it? What is the next step? What are we going to test? And every conversation that we have, unlike all the people, the industry experts that I talked to before we enter the space, they were saying it can't be done. You can't mechanize. And so they were challenging what we were going to do, not how could we do it. And so right. in terms of creating, you know, how have we created an innovative culture, the what's not in question. Every conversation is around how are we going to do it and how are we going to make it better? And, you know, again, you know, it all, there's just so many benefits to, to, to innovation in general. But if you think about, you know, creating a competitive moat around our business. When we compare ourselves to others in, in our in our space, even if somebody were to get to where we are today, 
a year from now, we will have innovated 15 more times. And so it's impossible, completely impossible to catch us. I mean, wow. literally right now, we're probably working on six to eight different innovations at the same time in parallel in different areas of the business. And so, you know, again, it's, that's what drives value, excitement, profitability, growth, and it, it, it makes it literally impossible for anyone to catch us. I love that phrase, by the way, impossible to catch us. <laughs> I just wrote that down for us. Like, man, what a great uh, strategic plan or uh, advantage knowing that our speed of innovation is going to consistently put us ahead of everybody. Um, it made me think too, when you kept saying people said it's impossible, you know, where I always go to is like, how do I distinguish between when something actually is impossible versus when it's just assumed to be impossible. Right. Um, and it makes me think of, you know, Elon Musk has obviously been an innovative force in multiple industries, which is wild, similar to yourself. And he faces that problem all the time where people are saying, hey, it's impossible. What you're asking of me is impossible to do. And uh, what I've learned from him is his question back is always tell me at the physics level why this is impossible. Mm -hmm. So if you, can, if, you can, if you can articulate to me how this defies some known law that is truly impossible, then I'll agree with you. If you can't, then you're being lazy and I need you to go figure it out, <laughs> right? Exactly. And, I don't know if you've thought about the same way or not. They're like every now and then there is something, but like that's more rare than we, than we would like to think. Um, and you need to be able to explain to me at a very fundamental level, how this is truly impossible. Have you faced that? Yeah. And I think the, the distinction goes back to what versus how. Yes. The what yeah. should never be in question. The how needs to always be in question. Yes. And cause what, you know, what we found is, um, you know, I, I don't need to go into too much detail on this because it's a little bit proprietary, but um, you know, we, we had a strategy. We know what we need to do on the land side to, to build the runway for, for our path of growth, both on, with our innovative products and our more traditional business. Um, you know, it's just a simple, you know, you got to have a certain amount of raw material to, to fuel future sales. Right. Right. And for a couple of years, even I knew what we needed, but I was looking, I was looking at it the wrong way. And so it, it wasn't necessarily the particular how that I was trying to do it was not possible. Mm. And the fact that we, we, we challenged that particular how thankfully in, in, in recent months, we have figured out how we're going to do it. And it is much better than yeah. what I previously thought. Um, and so I'm not sure if that answers your question, but um, oh, it's perfect, but we've definitely had some, some how ideas that, that we determined were not going to work. And typically they, they lead to a, you know, a better solution. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, so thinking about your, your growth and just building people around you, because just like you mentioned, that a, a thought that you had around how didn't work, I'm assuming team kind of worked with you and then you make a breakthrough through as a team and this thing is continuing to grow and grow. I'm just curious, like, Hey, how are you, how are you finding the right people? Um, even in that, that R and D side, you know, I think the fact that my, it even sounds like everybody is equipped with everybody's an innovator because that's the mission of this company. And so everybody's looking for how we can make something better. And I love that as just a, a tip for people to think about how do we make an innovative company? Like it's gotta be in, in, in that DNA. Um, cause the person on the front lines oftentimes is the person who can figure out the problem the fastest or the solution, uh, most quickly. But yeah, tell me about just hiring and what have you found in terms of like finding innovative people who could fit your culture and be a, a value add? I'm curious in that like R&D side of things, how you've, how you've begin to either find people or just cultivate people um, that kind of fit that. And you're like, yes, this is the kind of team member that we need. Because um, mm -hmm. I'm guessing like industry experience might not be all that helpful for you. You know, it's like, yeah, we need somebody that's a little bit different who doesn't know this industry, anything like that in terms of just finding the right people to, to build the, the company. Yeah, uh, no, great question. And, um, you know, we actually have not hired a single person from the industry. Exactly. Just, yes. There's great people in the industry. It's not it's yeah. not that it's just, you know, we with with the culture we're building, we need people that that are not thinking the same way that everybody else has always done. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the. The journey has been, you know, it's certainly evolved from, from the early days to where it is now. Um, you know, now we've, we just hired an unbelievable HR director, Ben Hertel, 
And before Ben, you know, I, I didn't even know what I didn't know. I didn't realize right. that. I mean, cause you know, in a high growth environment, when we, when, when we didn't have somebody that was fully dedicated to, to growing the team, finding the right people, running a process, it was really hard because who's going to, who's going to take time out of their day to stop and recruit. Mm. And so thankfully we've been very fortunate. Typically almost all of our team members have come from team members. And, and so one rock star knows another rock star that, that wants to join the team. And, and, you know, I think our, our culture, our story and our mission has been attractive enough where thankfully we've been able to build an awesome team uh, even before Ben um, yeah. just by, just by attracting good, good people. Um, mm-hmm. But now, like I said, we've got a, an awesome HR director runs a process and, and um, you know, again, I, before Ben, I, I didn't realize what it was supposed to be like, but it's, uh, yeah. it, it's much easier today. And, um, and in terms of, you know, what are we looking for in people? It's, it, it's all mindset. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, resumes are fine. I don't care about a resume. You know, I, I can usually tell in a 10 minute conversation that somebody foster a growth mindset Mm. And with a growth mindset, anything's possible. You know, I don't, I don't believe that intelligence is a fixed state of being. Yes. If you've got a growth mindset, you can learn, you can innovate, you can, you can become an expert in something. Um, but with, you know, with a fixed mindset, none of that's possible. That's so, right. Yeah. So we really hire for mindset. Um, but that's more kind of present day in the early days, the, 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 the best decision that, that we made was, um, we brought on, uh, one of my business partners now, Rawson Getz, who's the president of the company. Yeah. And I mean, I can't say enough good things about Rawson, but he really is, he's the perfect counter to, um, uh, I believe to myself. Um, whereas, you know, I, I'm a little bit better at, at casting vision of, of what we need to be doing in three to five years. And he is incredible at saying, okay, if we're going to do that in three to five years, here's what we got to do right now. Here are the yes. proper steps in order to make that possible and to do it in a way where we don't have big setbacks. And, and so he is really, um, he's been instrumental. Um, I mean, on all levels, but, um, you know, certainly in, in, as far as the, um, the, the hiring in the early days, he was really the catalyst to help take the business to the next level. Um, you know, and most of the, most of our leadership team, um, well, we, we've, we've doubled the leadership team in the last really 18 months. Um, but most of uh, our original folks are, are still with us today. And so, um, you know, Brent Hall started as our CFO while he was still a, uh, a senior in college, you know, made a 4.0 and also, you know, ran the finances for our business. Wow. Uh, you know, he's, been, he's been with us since the beginning and has really grown from a, you know, a, a CFO at a $7 million company to a CFO of a $50 million company. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we've been fortunate to pick up some great people along the way and, and, um, and, you know, today it is, it is much easier, but, um, that's yeah. super cool. You've said several things that we may circle back to one. One is just a common theme on this podcast has been a visionary like yourself seeing an exponential growth when they've found a counterpart that is more of an integrator, an implementer, right? Someone that can take the big picture vision and actually translate it and distill it into the action steps that it's going to take sequentially to get there. And that's just been a really cool theme to see uh, because oftentimes in unhealthy relationships, those can be agitations, right? That counterpart cannot represent something that agitates us. Like, well, you're always, you're always shooting down my ideas, right? Uh, you're always, yeah. or the other one's like, you're always the pie in the sky person. But when you calibrate that well, you get compelling vision and then you have clear plans to get there and you start moving methodically towards your mission. Right. Uh, so I think that's really cool to see. Maybe we'll circle back to that a little bit later, but I'd actually written down earlier before Jordan asked that question, I wrote down the words outsider advantage. And I was just thinking about you coming in, not having been around the pine straw industry at all. And is that actually a key to innovation for you is coming in with fresh eyes coming in, uh, without being maybe uh, inundated with how things are typically done and you kind of fall into the same assumptions that everybody else makes. Um, and then you, I think you answered it. So I'm, I'm not even really asking a question. I just think that's really cool. But my question I always go to as a coach, can we teach somebody stuff that other people do naturally, right? Like, can we teach innovation uh, by observing people that naturally innovate? And the three things I wrote down that I thought were interesting was uh, – listen, look, and learn, or look, listen, and learn. That if I, if I listen to your story, 
I'm like, man, you went and you looked around. Like you actually just kind of paid attention. You're observant, observant to how we're collecting straw, observant to pallets and observing the process. And you're listening to customers, right? So then you're exhibiting the listen part. Like where are they frustrated? You know, where do they want something better? And then you learned constant through innovation. Uh, and it feels like that would be a really transferable thing to anybody saying, if you want to be more innovative, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to innovate your industry, how do you develop the skills of looking, listening, and learning uh, to, pro- to kind of foster some of that growth and that growth mindset and that innovation culture? Um, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. Um, so, so a couple of thoughts. Are, are y'all familiar with, um, with Napoleon Hill? Yeah. Think the, uh, the law of success. Um, he talks a lot about the concept of a mastermind. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and basically, you know, the, the high level short version is when, when you get a group of people together and, and you're working harmonious, harmoniously towards the same goal, that it's almost like this unnatural transferring of, of ideas and, and brain power where, you know, three plus three equals 12. Yeah. Um, the collective so, intelligence um, emerges. Exactly. And so, so I do believe that it, yes, innovation can be taught, but it's all, it's all cultural. If, if, if we're having the right conversations, then people are going to move to an innovative space. If we're talking about what can't be done, then your mind doesn't even go to that, you know, go to that place. And so, um, I mean, at this point, you know, I, I might've started some initial conversations, but at this point, our team is way more innovative than I am. Yeah. Uh, I mean, literally I could rattle off each innovation, each major innovation that we've come up with has come from a team member, not myself. Again, I, wow. you know, I may have started a conversation, but you know, most of my ideas are, you know, I, I look, I view them as incomplete. You know, I can yeah. throw it out on the table and then once the team kicks it around and sort of polishing it, yeah. um, then you've got an idea. Um, but yes, I do think innovation can be taught. I mean, this, this concept, uh, which I, I can't reveal, um, we're hoping to reveal uh, this a new product and a, and a, a new uh, manufactured product next year. Yeah. Um, but that concept came from Aaron Cooper, and mm-hmm. he he was uh, he, he had an idea in the middle of the night and was was on YouTube researching stuff and and it was a hundred percent on him. It literally at two a.m. he forwards wow. an email and was like, "Guys, look what I found." That wow. that idea you know led that wasn't the ultimate idea, but that opened the door to a relationship that led to this new product that we're coming out with. And so, so again, you know, with fostering the the right conversations and the right thought process, I mean, yeah, the team's coming up with all the innovations at this point. Yeah. What was Aaron's role? What's his role on the team? Uh, or so Aaron, least... Aaron runs our manufacturing facility where we make our bag product. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and he is, he's the one that has come up with, I, I mean, I, countless innovations. I mean, remember yeah. we, we had to invent this thing from scratch. And so, yeah. right. Everything from the way that we we unroll it, the way that we clean it, the way that we process it, um, aspiration systems, ERP systems, robots, yeah, uh, the way that we store it, the manufacturing flow. I mean, literally, it's it's to the point now where you know we're getting real time information every single day, weight per bag, waste, profitability. I mean, that's that's all him. Yeah, wow. fantastic. So I uh, recently just made it through um, Humanocracy by Gary Hamill which was referred to, I think, by a couple of people on this podcast. Uh, Vern Harnish was one author of Scaling Up. He, he referred that. I'm like, okay, you know, let's make sure we read the books that Vern recommends. And so making through that, they, there's a steel company that they're talking about. And I was racking my brain while you were talking, trying to think about the name of that one. So Sara Sarah and Sara Steel Company for not remembering the name <laughs> today. Um, yep. Uh, but you still got your credit. But the, they talked about this steel company that was, again, the most profitable steel company in, in their industry and repeatedly. And you start to figure out like, okay, they are the most innovative. That was one of their primary things that helped them. Again, it's impossible to catch up is a little bit what it felt like as they were talking about it. It was like, man, I'm not sure if you could actually, uh, you couldn't have uh, an OD coach, you know, organizational development person come in and even restructure this organization to become that. Like it's, it's just innovation is, is such a competitive advantage for them. But what you found was it was the, the people on the front lines, you know, it, uh, so mm. many of their um, true innovations came through, through them. And so again, the culture actually empowering them to, to think in that manner. One of the complexities 
is just thinking about, okay, how at executive leadership, how do you continue to foster that from the financial side or, or just the resourcing side? Cause it's financial is one of the things in my head, but just all the resources from the thought resources, you know, human capital to just, you know, financial capital. Um, is that a place where you guys have, have been yet, or is it still feel it's such a tight knit team? You know, when we hear it, we can execute on it. Has it gotten to the place where, Hey, it's actually a couple layers deep in the organization and we got to figure out how do we, how do we send resources and how do we make those decisions? Like, how do we make decisions on which ideas we go with and which ideas we test? Um, any learning on, on that? Cause I feel like that's one of the things that could, that, that essentially stops the organization is they get too much bureaucracy in there, mm-hmm. but you still need to make decisions on how do we, how do we apply the capital to the, to the certain ideas? Um, any thoughts on that? And have you faced those, those challenges too much yet? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, you know, th- one thing that we do as a business is uh, we, we've got a really good communication rhythm. You know, we call them daily huddles. And we've got a leadership team huddle at 930. We've got a logistics team huddle at two. We've got a manufacturing team huddle at 230. And so the the, the, the conversation is constant. Mm. Um, you know, we, we try to, we call it keeping everything in the fishbowl. You know, we try to keep all the important information, KPIs, whatever metrics are important, we try to keep in the fishbowl, um, which, you know, as we've grown, has created a whole new set of challenges of, of keeping real-time information that's accurate. Uh, that's a whole other conversation, though. Um, but just constant communication about the, you know, what's going on in the business today, but also what projects are you working on? How's the innovation project coming? And it's just, it is constant conversation. Mm. Um, you know, I would say the, the, in terms of, you know, funding it and, and deciding which ones, uh, that we're actually going to move forward with as we've gotten bigger, the numbers just get a lot bigger. And so, um, really what, what dictates which ones we move forward with are the ones that we're able to put a plan together, a plan, not just let's go try it, but an actual execution plan that we can all agree is a solid plan. We understand how much money it's going to, going to take what the time frame is and usually the you know what determines which ones we move forward on now are the ones that we've got a solid plan together on we've got full team support uh we've got got our board behind us which we've got an incredible board unbelievably supportive their investors advisors like all the good stuff you could want and you know we kind of view them as they're not in the business every day and so if we can't explain something to them in a way that they're going to get behind we haven't done our job and so we've got a really great dynamic with them. And, and typically with these innovation projects, we sort of use that as the barometer of, you know, hey, guys, if, if they don't get it, then we haven't done our job yet or the plan's incomplete. Um, but we've gotten in a really good rhythm with them of, of putting things together, putting the plans, understanding the cash flow implications, and then working with them to get it to a point where we all agree and move forward. Do you ever feel, do you guys ever feel the tension of the energy like George talked about resources, energy, uh, time, uh, money on maintaining or running the things we've already innovated on versus the new things we're trying to innovate on. Does that ever feel like a competition or have you guys worked it out where it, you don't experience that tension? Yes, there's definitely tension there. And in our situation, uh, you have the existing business, which is trailers dropped and traditional installation services. Yeah. And we happen to be the largest provider of the traditional pine straw in the country. So that's a big part of our business. And that's what, that's what feeds the machine right now. And so as we innovate, we are sort of changing our, what we call our core business or our traditional business. And so they definitely are at odds with each other because we have to continue to grow and support the core business to fund a lot of the innovation on the other side. And so it's, it's a delicate balance. Um, but it, it definitely helps that we're sort of the, the leader in both categories. Um, you know, so, so I think we've got a little bit more control over that transition as, you know, as time goes on and as we're ready. Interesting. Yeah. I'm just asking, cause we're a very innovative team and I feel that already at a small level, cause we're a small team compared to you guys where we can get so excited by the next new idea that we're like, Oh, have we fully followed through? With the old idea, you know, that thing created its own machine that has got to be tended to, you know, or it's, it's got a few more steps left in it and we're already on to the next thing. Uh, so that was where that question is coming from. Um, you know, the other thing you mentioned is you referenced it being a high growth culture and 
that is unique. Like the more we've gotten into the different sectors and different businesses, you realize there's, there are those businesses that are more in a high growth environment and other ones that are more stable and small innovations and small growth here year over year. And they're very different in the challenges and in the, the opportunities. And so I'm just curious to hear from you, what would you say are the unique challenges maybe of having a high growth business? Oh man, the unique challenges. It's everything. I mean, mm. everything in everything is at is at war with growth. Mm. And so I mean, so let's just talk about cash flow, for example. So every year that we grow, it requires more networking capital to support the inventory and the AR required to run the business. Yeah. And so it's great. We grew 30% last year. Well, that's another 30% more of networking capital that's required just to run the business. And so when you combine, um, so cash flow is a huge challenge, um, making sure that we're increasing our, our networking capital just to run the business, but then we're also creating enough retained earnings to, to support and fund all of the innovation projects, new bagging lines. Um, and so we're constantly juggling and fighting that battle, um, which just, it comes with growth. Mm. Banks don't like growth. Yeah, uh, I'm sure that's no surprise, but banks want 10 years stability, no risk. And, uh, you know, thankfully, we've got we've got some great lenders that are very supportive of what we're doing. Um, but that wasn't always the case in the early days. Um, yeah. Growth is scary. So banks don't like you. Um, it's it's a constant need. But basically, you're you're kind of your own enemy. Like it's great to grow, but you're creating more and more cash flow issues as you grow. Um, wow. And so, that, you know, those those are some of the, the unique challenges that we have. And again, we've got an, we've got a fantastic financial team. I mean, uh, you know, Brent has built out an awesome team um, yeah. that, that manages our, our cash flow, our finances. We've got a great board that's very supportive and an understanding of, of you know, what challenges we're up against. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, everybody's at war. Everyone yeah. in the industry <laughs> hates us because we're changing the whole game. They want us out of yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, it, you know, it, it's a constant, constant battle. Have know. you read, have you read the book uh, Shoe Dog about Phil Knight starting Nike? No, I'm adding the list though. Man, the first maybe third of the book was literally just him at war with the banks, and he was he was constantly befuddled by it. Even though as time grew on, he understood their discomfort, but he was like, "I'm getting penalized because of my growth," and they kept coming. Like he literally got kicked out of bank after bank after bank when he was growing like a hundred percent a year. And he was like, look again, I grew another hundred percent. And they were like, you have, you have no retained earnings in the bank. Like you're not, you basically don't have a sufficient amount of money in our bank to make us feel comfortable. And you keep taking all that money out and putting it into fulfilling new shoe orders because you've grown so much. And it literally almost shut down Nike from ever fully taking off. I mean, he got down to like the last bank in California that was willing to like lend him any money. And then that even got ripped away from him. And he had to uh, take a chance on an outside investor to float them. But it was like, I never realized till reading that book, how serious that challenge could be. And just in terms of, of lending and, and banks comfort with your growth, when you would think you'd just show up and go, you should have confidence in us. Look, year over year, we're growing. And they're going, yeah, but you're not, <laughs> the numbers aren't working out in a way that make us comfortable, right? That's right. And the problem is that a high growth business is so unique that most people, they just don't understand at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because I mean, I, I understand from a bank's perspective, you know, their job is to, is to loan money in a, well, as risk-free as they can make it, they don't make huge margins. You know, they might have a two-point net interest margin spread. They can't be making risky loans to make two points. Right. And yeah. so, you know, I totally get it. Um, you know, but people just don't understand that. I think the tech industry is probably going a little too far in terms of, you know, the way that they don't just value a business or look at a business based on the on the EBITDA. Yeah. Now, I think outside of tech, this obsession with short-term EBITDA, it's, it's counterintuitive. It's when you're in a high-growth environment – Every year, you are you're having to hire the infrastructure to support next year. Yeah. So, so I'm I'm hiring today for what I'm going to be next year, which is thirty percent larger. Yeah. Of course, it's going to hit my EBITDA. Yeah. And so it's just this constant obsession. I love that you say that because he literally 
uh, at one point in the book, you're going to love this book, by the way. It was, it was so fascinating just hearing the story, but he yeah. started saying the word EBITDA became a curse word to him. Where he's like, yeah. if I hear that one more time, he was like, <laughs> I, it was like, it literally became a dirty word to him where he's like, this is the issue is we keep talking about EBITDA and I've got, he's a visionary, right? Like I've got this, I'm about to expand into China. I'm going to be the first person to expand into China and all this kind of stuff. And he was just like, if I hear EBITDA one more time, I'm going to lose my mind. Well, exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, EBITDA is important, right? but it's got to be a balanced approach. Yeah, and, and that's where I think most people just they, they don't have the context or the experience to fully understand what it means to to be a part of a, of a high growth business. And yeah. EBITDA is a factor, but it is not the only factor. And uh, that's just you know added to the list of challenges for a high growth business. Yeah, well, I would love to just take one more lens look at a high growth challenge. Um, you know, as, aspect one the clear one is the financial one. But what about in terms of building a culture? What about in terms of a team? Like, how have you seen? Because I'm sure you've been in a a different company uh, that wasn't necessarily in a high growth environment. What are those unique challenges? You know, is it going from everything being fast and organic to uh, some structures and things in place, but how do they not disrupt our speed and our agility? Like what have been the unique challenges on the people side for being in a high growth environment? Mm-hmm. You know, culture building, it, it takes, it takes a lot of intentionality and a lot of time. And, um, I, you know, thankfully I'm, I approached a mentor of mine, Jim Balcom, uh, years and years ago. This was this was probably 12 months into Swift Straw, and before, uh, w- with our uh, real estate investment group, um, we were procuring and managing the deals, right? And so, you know, our our success was based on what we were able to do. Now, now shift gears to an operating company, and 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 I'm trying to get other people to do what we need to do. And obviously very, very different. And so I, um, I went to a mentor of mine who's um, built a company called Hummingbird. Um, you know, it was his first big success and he's had a ton since then. But I just said, man, Jim, how do you get a group of people to all move in the same direction? And he said, culture trumps strategy. And so that was sort of his, his uh, you know, his one-liner, but, yes. um, but we worked a lot together of understanding. And, and then basically I went on a, on a journey of reading every possible thing I could read about building company culture started with, uh, delivering happiness, which was the, uh, founder of Zappos. Zappos. Yeah. And then, you know, it seems like every book I read in the book recommends another book. And so, you know, uh, Tony Shea recommended peak. Um, and then just, one book, and I literally read every book I could find on building company culture, and it was just a very intentional. Took a long time, and um, but are there know, a few lessons that stick out to you from all that reading that that uh, just stay with you? So obviously, very important, and um, you know, Vern Harnish has covered a lot of this in, in scaling up. But the original vision casting of you know what's the mission, what's the purpose, what are the core values. Um, you know, I'd say that was a really big milestone establishing that. And those have evolved, you know, since we started it. Sure. Um, but that was a, that was a really big foundational move. And then, you know, a lot of it was, I mean, it, it sounds, it, it's really just getting, getting, getting the right people, um, is, is what has driven the culture more than anything. Mm. And so, you know, I, again, like, I'm I'm pretty good at casting, you know, the initial vision, but, uh, bringing Rawson on, bringing Brent Hall on, bringing Joseph Arnold on, bringing John Babington, these guys that, that, that live and breathe our core values. And, you know, they're able to, you know, to then translate that to all the people that they bring on and that they manage. And, um, you know, getting the right people is what really accelerated the, the strong culture that we have. Mm. Um, you know, in the early days, I think one of many mistakes that I made was, you know, again, hiring without an HR director in the early days, I don't have time for it, didn't want to make time for it. And so um, I was, I made a lot of mistakes in, in bringing people on the team, there was nothing wrong with them. But they just weren't the, they weren't the right fit. Yeah, yeah. What what we're building is very unique. It's very, Mm -hmm. it's high growth, this high sense of urgency around everything that we do constant challenges, constant conversations about challenging your idea. Yeah. And it's just, for some people, it's not a comfortable, uh, that's not how they want to spend their day. 
And, and so I made a lot of mistakes. There was nothing wrong with anybody that hasn't worked out. It's really been, you know, my issue and either not not you, it's me (laughs) in a position to succeed or just not picking the right fit. Um, you know, cause if, if you're working for us, like hopefully, you know what you're signing up for, but it is not check in at eight and leave at three. It is every day you're going to be challenged to grow both personally and professionally. Every single day, we're going to be talking about things that we did wrong and ways to improve it. Every single day, we're going to have new challenges. And for some people, that's exhilarating. For some people, it's not. And that was probably the big fail on my part was um, was selecting people that maybe that's not exhilarating to some people, which I know yeah. it's not. Yeah. Um, but just, you know, as, as we've added team members that really fostered and shared those values and that mindset, the hiring and the culture building has been a lot easier. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, especially because you've combated what many we see many people make the mistake of having things ambiguous, where the the vision, the mission, the values, who we are, what we're about, where we're going, have a level of ambiguity, which would make it really hard to know who the right fit is. It would make it really hard to know what to celebrate versus what to to cut out, right? And since you guys have done the work of getting really crystal clear on that, it should be somewhat of a beacon, like you know, either you're going to naturally respond to this and be gravitated towards it, or you're going to repel against it. And that's okay, because there's gonna be a different culture somewhere that has who they are and what they're about that you would be gravitating towards, right? Um, So that's, man, kudos to you guys. You guys have done some great work on that. Well, you you described it very well. And and that's why the most of the hiring up to this point that has worked out is people that gravitated to us. And, and the ones that we tried to force, um, just because, you know, we weren't willing to, to go through, you know, take the time or go through the effort to really find the right people. Those are the ones that, uh, that may not have worked long term, but the ones that have gravitated to us, uh, those are the ones that have worked out really, really well. Yes. Yeah, it makes me think of um, a tuning fork, which I'm right on the edge of my capabilities of describing this because I'm not very musical. But from what I know about tuning forks is if you you know, you strike it and it's going to, let's say, put a D minor, I think that's a note, out into out into the room. Anything in the room that also has that vibration in it, has a D minor in it, will reverberate with it, right? And I think strong cultures are that way. That when you know there's a whole, there's a whole um, spectrum of notes that can be played in the universe. Ours just happens to be this note right? This is our sound. This is our unique vibration. And when you strike that, it's clear. Then people that come around are those that had something in them that also reflects that. And they're like, yeah, I've got that in me too. I've got that desire for innovation. I've got that desire to move fast and work hard. And you, you find that and it falls flat. You know, it kind of falls flat on anyone that doesn't have that in them. Uh, so it goes back again to that value of knowing what the note is that you guys carry that tune and just how do we keep striking it? How do we keep making it clear to the company? How do we keep reinforcing it, celebrating it, and watching that just continue to find almost on its own those who reverberate with that, right? That That is a great way to put it up. Uh, I wrote that down. The The note that we carry, and some people it works, and some people it, you know, they're singing Doesn't a different resonate. note. So yeah. that, that's really good. I mean, that's just like people in general, right? We're all so insecure around who we are and how we fit in. It's like, if you just recognize you carry a unique note, you know, and you learn how to just own that and be comfortable in that, you look around, you find other people are that way as well, and they can become your tribe and in companies, it becomes your culture, right? Uh, And eventually your competitive advantage, which you guys have have definitely uh, demonstrated. Uh, Man, this is so fascinating. Uh, Jordan, any questions before we get into the lightning round? Yeah, I was curious about um, just because you even mentioned a few books on the on the culture side. You know, our audience is we're looking for a founder of a fast growing company or somebody who aspires to be one one day. And you even mentioned your mentors, a few of them along the way uh, that you've been able to lean into. So even just your chance to kind of give back. Is there any um, book or resource that you love going to that you say, hey, you know, if you're a growth minded person, this is a great place to to go to continue to grow. Uh, any suggestions that you make out there? Uh, to our audience to say, hey, go pay attention to this, subscribe to this, read this, uh, anything like that that you just love as a resource that that kind of continues to keep you in that growth mindset? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, um, I, I've got a little curriculum that I've put together for, for anybody that wants um, in our business or beyond. Um, I, I've got kind of a, a, um, 
a curriculum that walks through different books, I always start with the mindset. Yeah. And the reason that's critical is with, with, with the right mindset, anything's possible with the wrong mindset, nothing's possible. Mm. And so really, you know, in order to, to, to make progress in any other area, um, I firmly believe you've got to start with a growth mindset. So that book's called The Mindset. Um, the second book is King's Cross. And uh, at our business and just from a leadership standpoint, um, you know, I challenge all of our people to grow in a balanced manner. That's professionally, spiritually, mentally, physically. And, and, and yeah. I don't shy away from that. So King's Cross, to me, is one of the best books for exploring, understanding and growing in your faith. And yeah. so that's something that I unashamedly promote. And if somebody doesn't want to do it, that's totally fine. But I'm not sacrificing my values um, for fear of offending somebody. And, and of course, I do it in a way, hopefully, that's, that is inspirational and not offensive. Sure. Um, yeah. but King's Cross is number two. Uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, number three. Um, good to Great, number four. Um, you know, Seven Habits is more, you know, how to, how to be a successful individual. Right. Good to Great is sort of kind of high level you know, how to build a successful company. And then Blue Ocean Strategy is absolutely my guiding North Star. I on, knew it. <laughs> innovation. Yes. So that that's kind of my short list. And I mean, I, I've got tons and tons of mentors of, and these are some people I've never even met, you know, whether it's Elon yeah. Musk or yeah. um, Richard Branson, you name it. Um, you yeah. know, I've read tons of books, just, uh, just gaining wisdom and inspiration from people like that, that I've never met. Yeah. Man, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's perfect, man. Dude, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, that's golden. Man, uh, let's do the lightning round. Let's take you in. Five five questions, man. Uh, question number one for you is, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, uh, what would it be? That's a, that's a, that's a good question. I know it's a lightning round. I'm having to think about it. Um, I, it, it would definitely be around. It would be around growing into the best version of yourself. Mm, and yeah. that to me is, that's my challenge to everyone in our business. And I, you know, I believe that's, that is a successful life. If you're doing yep. what you want to do with the people that you want to do it with, without interfering with the rights of others, and you're growing every day, physically, mentally, spiritually, professionally, every single day that you're, you're growing and working towards becoming the best version of yourself. That to me is, 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 and, and, you know, success to me is a journey yeah. uh, and a concept rather than a finite place. But that to me is a, is a successful life. Yeah. Well, just to even hit for our audience, I thought it was compelling. Just watched your, uh, your video. I think it's on your about us page, but it talks about your purpose to empower people to become the best version of themselves by constantly improving, challenging the status quo and making the impossible possible. Um, That's it. Which is fantastic. And I, it was, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm down. I'm down for that. Yeah. You're speaking our yeah. language. I like that. Yeah, that was, uh, that was fantastic. So I love that. That's the message that you are trying to ingrain. And so it's good that there's some, uh, um, some alignment there. Uh, question number two, single best advice you've gotten about growing your business. And what about the worst advice you've gotten about growing a business or growing your business? <laughs> you know, best advice, I guess I've got to go back to, to um, Jim Balcom, culture Trump strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And of uh, course, that, that that's a statement. And then, you know, following that, helping him um, or he, he helping me understand what that actually means and at least beginning the journey, because clearly I or we didn't have it figured out day one. But yeah. um, but he sort of um, he was a catalyst for beginning that journey, which, you know, led to delivering happiness, which led to peak, which led to, you know, down a road with, you know, lots of different learning opportunities. And, but that was kind of the beginning. So. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, uh, what about the worst? I can't think of any one piece of advice, but I would just say that the worst advice in general is from somebody that's never done what you're, tr that, what you're trying to do. Um, like, you know, I always tell people, you know, be careful who you get advice from. Yeah. Because, you know, if, if they've never done what you're trying to do, they're probably going to think it's impossible. 
And then beware of people that have some self-interest, jealousy. Like I only take advice from people that have my and our business's best interest at heart. Mm. Typically, they're people that are 100 times more successful than we are. Um, but those are the people I like to get advice from because there's no there's no jealousy bias at all. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I love uh, my, one of my friends, Ben. He, he likes to say almost jokingly, but also pretty serious. He goes, man. I just don't trust advice from people whose lives I don't want. Exactly. I thought that was so interesting. He's like, if you just, he goes, look at the messenger. If you're not inspired by them, where they are, who they are, he's like, well, then you just, at the very least, you need to be cautious. Doesn't mean you have to fall and reject. They may still be right every now and then. But he's like, I'm always weary of advice from people whose lives I don't want. And I thought that was a great axiom. Exactly. Uh, question number three, uh, what causes you the most worry uh, leading your organization? Hmm. Great question. Um, biggest worry is just around timing. We've got a lot that we want to do and a lot of innovations that are still yet to come. And the, the reality around the time that it takes to plan these things, we got to rely on, unfortunately, we have to rely on third parties in a lot of cases. And we're dealing in a world where people don't move at our speed. There's not the level of urgency. And, you know, for us, if we tell you we're going to do something, we will die before it doesn't happen. And a lot of the world does not operate um, under the same you know, principles and values. And so it's just the reality of the time that it takes to do all that we want to do is, mm. is the main thing that keeps me up. There's, you know, there's a lot that we want to accomplish and I just hate that all of it takes so much time. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It just takes too much time. So keep doing it faster. Um, man, what's the, what's the B the B hag for you? What's the big hairy audacious goal um, to refer to, <laughs> to Chip Collins. Um, what is it for you right now? And for the company, you can kind of inter intertwine those if you'd like for you personally and the company. Um, but what's the BHAG right now? Yeah, great question. Um, I'm trying to think, um, I probably don't need to share like any of the exact details, but sure. we are we're planning a very, very large um, event in five years. And there's some very, very specific things that we want to accomplish between now and then. And so um, the BHAG is to change everything about the industry forever, flip it on its head. And, um, and so we'll be able to look back and have something to be pretty proud of. Come Fantastic. on. That's yeah. so good. Man, uh, it's so... Was that that was it last nope, one? Right? Question number five. One oh, the, the my favorite question. Yes, man, uh, Matt. If we uh, we're gonna go back to the future for a second. If we could, uh, if you could hop in a DeLorean, you get to go back to your past. Uh, when would you go back, and, and what would you say to yourself? Hmm. Man, that's a great question. You have to give me just a second. That's why. That's why it's our favorite. And you can't. It's not about changing anything. You get to go back and you get to say something to yourself, out the driver window before you zip back to the present. Yeah, we know changing something always messes things up from the movie. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would probably say um, I would go back a handful of years. I, I've got three kids: um, Liza six, Hunter four, and Chapel one, and. In the last couple years, um, I've, I've been very intentional about being um, more balanced and more present with them. And so I would say that I would go back to the day my daughter was born and, and try to do the same, the same change that's happened a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, and it doesn't mean that I'm less focused on growing our business. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, that I'm not doing all the things that I want to do. It's just, I'm a lot more intentional now about being present. I'm a lot more intentional now about, you know, I don't do social media. Um, I've got a very strict uh, dinner reservation every night in my house at six o'clock that I do not miss for anything in the world. And um, I wish I had started that a little bit sooner. I love that, man. That's I'm going to awesome. take that, that, that idea of a dinner reservation with your family. That's great. Mm -hmm. Um, well, Matt, man, thank you so much for being uh, on the podcast today. So many takeaways, so many uh, timely lessons on innovation, on culture, on leadership, on integrity. Uh, but what stands out to me that's so fun is we just had a really fascinating conversation around pine straw, right? 
And that's what is, <laughs> that's what's fine. You know, it's fascinating to me is that there are so many industries like that, that yeah. we just haven't looked at in another way and said, what could be done here? How could this be one exciting to part, be a part of two, how could the industry itself grow in exciting ways? And three, how does that actually work out well for everybody involved? And it's just, it's fascinating to me uh, to see an innovative mind like yours find an industry that could be seen as just old school and boring. And what do you, what do you mean innovation? We're not talking about space, right? We're talking about pine straw. Uh, and yet look at all the change that's happened and, and the, the BHAGs that you can't even talk about on the horizon. So, man, thank you for, uh, for reminding us of that. Thank you for representing that much needed value um, in the culture right now. And uh, again, thank you for your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys. It's been fun. Yeah. Thank you, Matt. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.